Well, good morning, Springbrook. Welcome to worship. We are so excited and honored to spend this time in worship with you this morning. So welcome to you. If, you, if this is your first time with us or maybe your first time back in a long time, a special welcome to you as well. If you're worshiping with us online, we want to welcome you as well and remind you that there are online hosts available all throughout the service who would love to answer any questions you have, spend time in prayer with you, and just get to know you a little bit. So we encourage you to engage in that chat. Or if you want a one-on-one prayer conversation with one of our online hosts, just click request prayer over on the right-hand side, and they would be delighted to spend that time with you. Our, our, our call to worship for this morning comes from Psalm 95, and I'd love to invite you now to stand if you are able for the reading of God's word. Psalm 95, verses 1 through 8, says, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not Harden your hearts. That's my prayer for you this morning, that as you hear God's voice, as we believe he is with us, that he is moving, that he is speaking to us, our prayer is that your hearts would be open and receptive to his spirit this morning. Let's sing praises to our great God who is worthy. Come set your rule and reign in our hearts again increase in us we pray unveil why we're made come set our hearts ablaze with hope like wildfire in our very souls holy spirit come invade us now we are your church we Need your power in us.
that's our prayer, right? When we pray your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, that's our prayer, that God would build his kingdom. Well, as we continue in worship this morning, I want to read to us from Daniel chapter 7. And we're in the series in Revelation right now, which is a book of prophecy, as is the book of Daniel. And so we hear Daniel prophesying. He says, as I looked, thrones were placed, and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Let's continue worshiping together this morning. Yeah. 
Amen. Well, in a moment, we're going to take communion. So if you're at home, uh, this would be a good time to make sure you have the elements handy. Um, For those of you in person, um, when I get done praying during this next song, I'd invite you to come up and grab them and take them during the song. Um, But we're in the book of Revelation right now, um, which is such an amazing book to talk about what God will do and the promises that we are secure in. And those promises are based on remembering something that Jesus has already done. Last week, we were in the throne room where John got to see God in all his glory seated on the throne and, and everything around him. And, and, and John looked at that and saw these beasts and these elders that were worshiping God. And Revelation 5 begins, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, that's God, a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaim with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly. John began to weep loudly in the throne room of God because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. We saw earlier in the book of Revelation that that Jesus overcame, he conquered, he was victorious over all of the pictures of sin that we see in the Old Testament. He was perfectly sinless to the point of he, he died on the cross for us. And he rose again, and he is seated at the right hand of God on the throne. And it is that Jesus whose body was broken and whose blood was spilled for the forgiveness of our sins. That Jesus who is a king from the line of David. That Jesus invites us to be with him now and forevermore. And the book of Revelation is a promise of what that will look like. So I want to invite all of you during this song to, to come up if you're a believer and, and think about our king who allowed his body to be broken and his blood to be shed on our behalf 
and remember what he did. And then in the sermon, look forward to what he's going to do and what he's doing even now. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you so much for what you have done. We thank you that you, Jesus, shed your blood. You allowed your body to be broken. We know that you, the the picture we have in Revelation of you on the throne is not a surprise. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. We know that, that you, all creation, is held in your hand. And, and we thank you that, that because of that and because of those promises, we, we thank you that, that when you tell us your death and your bloodshed will be a way for us to join you, that it's true. And we thank you that in your resurrection, we know your words are true. We thank you that as we remember your death, we also look forward to the life that you and we will have in you. And so we pray that we would approach you with humility today as we remember what you did for us. And we we pray that we would remember not just you on the cross, because you're not there anymore and you never will be, but we pray we would remember that you are seated in the throne room, that you are worthy and that you have overcome, you are victorious over all sin and you invite us to join you there. It's in your name we pray. Amen. i
before the Lord together in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, when we fix our minds on that scene in the throne room and you and all of your splendor and your glory and your holiness, immediately we see the contrast between your goodness and your perfection and our brokenness and our sin. And Father, without Jesus, we would be left there in this hopelessness of never being able to measure up to your absolute holiness, your absolute goodness. But we thank you as we have just celebrated in communion for the body and the blood of Jesus that have made it so that we can stand before you in your holiness and be seen as acceptable in your sight, as beloved children of the King. It's miraculous. It is wonderful. It is greater than we can possibly wrap our minds around. The lengths that you went to to bring us to yourself. And so I pray for each one in this room today, those who are worshiping from home, that there would be a deep sense of your love for them. Each one of us is coming with burdens from our week, with anxieties about the week to come. Father, you are meeting us now with your love. You have made a way for us to know you, and you're inviting us into that right now. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, as we open your word today, that you would interpret it for us, that you would open our eyes that we might see, our ears to hear our minds to understand and our hearts to receive what you have for us in your good and perfect word. 
You are so good. And we get to worship you. What a privilege and an honor it is. Father, we love you. All of this is for you. And it's for your glory. We pray this in the matchless name of our King Jesus. Amen. And you may be seated. Well, once again, we want to welcome you. We are so glad you are with us to worship today. We love this Springbrook family, and we love opportunities to connect with you in worship and in other events. And we have a really exciting marriage date night event that's coming up in just a couple of weeks. We want to give you a little sneak peek of what that is going to be like. So take a look. Hi, I'm Amberly Neese, the host of Marriage Date Night. I have to say, my husband and I have been married 28 years, and to be honest with you, I love him like crazy, but there are days between the permission slips and the travel and the trying to make sure kids' homework is taken care of, it can be really stressful. And so that's why I'm so excited to invite you to Marriage Date Night. Three hours of laughter and music and more laughter. It's fantastic. Two comedians and a musician. And coming your way, an incredible lineup. We have David Dean, hilarious comedian. You will love him. Uh, Brian Weaver, oh my goodness. Brian Weaver, musician and overall amazing guy as well as Kay Dodd. She is wonderful and hilarious. You all will have an amazing time. So grab your spouse, grab your neighbor, grab your spouse's neighbor, your neighbor's spouse, grab them all and come and join us for Marriage Date Night. Hi friends, I'm David Dean. You don't know me, but I know you. And I know you and I know your spouse because I've been married for 112 years. And you know what? When my wife and I want to get out, we want to go laugh. We want comedy, we want something non-threatening, we want to go to the church, we want clean, we want fresh, we want inspiring. That's what Marriage and Date Night is all about. I'll see you soon. Book your tickets. I can't wait to meet you. God bless. Take care. Hey there, my name is Brian Weaver. I'm a singer-songwriter and I live in Nashville, Tennessee, and I'm so excited to be out on Marriage Date Night. Gonna be playing some songs and just having some fun with you guys. So I'd just love for you guys to join us. As we have a night of music and comedy, you're going to laugh so much. You're going to have an awesome time with your spouse. So we look forward to seeing you guys soon. Get your tickets right now. Hey, I'm comedian Kay Dodd from Atlanta, Georgia, and I love Marriage Date Night. It is such a fun night of music, uplifting music and comedy. It is a night for you and your spouse to get out, forget the cares of the world, and take that busy schedule and just leave it alone, leave it at home, get a babysitter, and come on down and laugh with us at Marriage Date Night. So Marriage Date Night is the perfect opportunity for you to uh, evangelize and bring friends to this event because it is so much fun. People have a fantastic time. And to be honest with you, uh, people are used to things like marriage retreats. Well, this is not a marriage retreat. It is a three hour marriage reboot. And we are so excited to have you consider buying tickets and bringing friends and joining us for an evening you will not soon forget. Outstanding. Well, if you are interested in attending, um, it's going to be set up kind of like we're set up right here, socially distanced, safe sections for 
you and your spouse. But uh, if you are interested in that, you can go to our website, springbrook.org slash date night, purchase your tickets. Pastor Matt's got some out in the lobby um, as well this morning. We are so glad that you are with us today. If you are watching online, there's a uh, online connection card. We'd love the opportunity to have you fill that out. Let us know that you're with us this morning. And if you're in person, you've got that connection card on your chair. If you could just take some time to fill that out, uh, there's a place for you to turn those in towards the back. And we are so grateful that you are with us um, today. I just want to let you know that uh, those date night tickets are available now. We've got our Hike for Light coming up um, with Informed Choices. It's going to be on uh, May 8th. And so uh, I know that Kim Joslin's on staff with uh, Informed Choices. We have quite a few uh, family members, individuals from uh, Springbrook Volunteer as well. It's a great opportunity for us to support an organization that is working with ladies and men that are trying to make decisions about what to do with their pregnancy. So if you are interested in knowing more about Informed Choices, we want to encourage you to visit their website. And we've got some brochures out at the Ministry Center uh, in the lobby if uh, you want some information about Hike for Like. It's going to be an exciting opportunity to support uh, a, a ministry uh, that is really having an impact on the lives of people in our community. Um, we also are looking at starting up our VBS this summer. Um, we are looking at, uh, to find out right now how many people are interested in serving before we decide uh, whether we uh, take this virtually or in person. And so if you want more information about VBS, be sure and visit our website. But this time I'd like to invite uh, Rebecca and her daughter Abigail out. Um, Rebecca and Abigail have been uh, key leaders as part of our past uh, VBS. And uh, I know it's been, it's always encouraging to see how excited you guys get. I appreciate how, uh, just how much energy you put into our VBS. Tell us a little bit about what's happening. All right. For, first of all, um, we, we have an amazing time when we uh, volunteer for VBS. We get in the car after we leave at noon, and we talk and share stories with each other about what the kids have said or learned or what made us giggle, that sort of thing. It's such a, a rewarding experience. It really is. The two of us really just, we, we enjoy, I enjoy seeing her be a part of it, and I just enjoy seeing all these kids enjoy the time out as well. Um, as some of you may know, last year we didn't get to do an in-person VBS. We did just um, do some home stuff. But we're looking to get um, hopefully up to 40 kids in person this year. Um, but we're calling on each of you. If God is putting it on your heart to volunteer, we are in desperate need of volunteers. Michelle and her team are doing their best to reach as many kids as they can this summer. But we need, uh, we need people to step up. And I promise, guarantee, risk-free, if you do volunteer to come on out, you're going to have a great time. There is no preconceived notions with these kids. You don't need to know a whole lot other than just how to smile and treat them well. Um, they will kind of lead the rest of it because they're just going to share and they're going to they're just thrive and have a great time. Um, there's just no reason not to do it. Does that make you feel guilty now? No. <laughs> um, it's exciting. I do want to point out on the slide there, it says the volunteer sign-up is May, May 9th. That's actually Friday, May 7th is the date. We need... Um, people to sign up as quickly as possible so that we can kind of calculate what numbers we have for volunteers. Our biggest need right now is uh, small group volunteers. Um, I know that kind of maybe sounds daunting. It's not. It's really easy. Like I said, the kids kind of just lead everything, and Michelle does such a great job of giving you everything you need to just make this successful. Um, so again, May 7th, this Friday, please, 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 if you go to springbrook.org, you'll see right on that main page, there's a link for VBS. Click on that, sign up. You will not regret it. Will they regret it? They will not regret it. So please, absolutely, we would look forward to having you be a part of that with us. Have a great morning. Great. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Rebecca and her husband, Andy, lead a small group here at Springbrook. And uh, Rebecca's husband, Andy, is one of our elders. And uh, they're such a, an encouraging couple. 
And uh, if you're looking for an opportunity to invest in the lives of kids, uh, this VBS is a great opportunity to do that. As well as uh, as we start to prepare for planning for our in-person 9 a.m. service for children's ministry as we move towards the fall. And so if you're interested in working with children, I know Michelle would love the opportunity um, to talk with you. Well, today we're continuing our series in the book of Revelation. And I love coffee, uh, a nice cup of coffee, but I also like espresso. There's a difference between a cup of coffee and espresso. It has everything to do with how concentrated it is. And so this morning we're going to be going through Revelation, we're going to be looking at the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. And I just want to encourage you this morning that you're going to be drinking a cup of espresso. <laughs> we're going to cover a lot of ground, but it's important. There's some summary. There's some things that uh, you can be encouraged by as we look at these uh, seals, trumpets, and bowls. It's a lot about God's judgment, his wrath being poured out. But in the midst of that, we see glimpses of, of hope. This Revelation series has been fun you know, for me, both preparing for as well as having conversations with others. I hope you've been blessed by it as well. We started our series by looking at the fact that the book of Revelation was written for our encouragement today. Um, everything that we see that comes from the throne of God, we see come to fruition in chapters 6 through 16. You know, at the very beginning, we see our revelation open up. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ, which God, his Father, gave to him to show to us. And so in that throne room of God that we looked at last week, we see God the Father on the throne, we see Jesus beside him, and then we see the spirits with him. And so we see the fullness of the Trinity, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all taking place in this scene in the throne. And we also see all of their relationships as we move through these upcoming chapters we're going to be looking at this morning. Everything from Revelation flows from the throne, beginning with the relationship with the Father and the Son. And then we looked at the seven churches you know, it was a reminder to us that we need to make sure that we're evaluating ourselves. And so we looked at the letter from the seven churches. There's warnings for us. But then there's also some encouragement that if we can conquer, if we can overcome and live the life out that God has called us to, that he will grant to us the opportunity to sit with him on that throne. And then we will be clothed in white and not be blotted out of the book of life. And so we see this heavenly host last week was, was people that were clothed in white. It's those people that have lived out their faith in accordance with God's will. And then you'll be made a pillar in the temple of my God, and you'll be given authority. And so we see from the throne room, we see all of the warnings and the encouragements from the seven churches also flow out of the throne. And then we looked at the throne. You know, that is a seat of ultimate authority. It's a, it should cause us to just wonder about how splendorous God is. We should see splendor when we look at the throne. We should worship God and we should reverence him. All of these things flow from the throne. And so as we move into our time together today, we're going to be looking at how the story of redemption starts to move towards its conclusion. And so we're going to see that God is holy. God is holy and he is just. And we we have a sin problem and there's consequences for our sin, but there is a solution. And all of those things, the fullness of those, is revealed to us as we look at what happens through these seals, trumpets, and bowls. This past week, I was doing a uh, devotion in 2 Samuel. King David uh, has become king, um, and the first thing that he does, his first order of business, is to bring the ark back to his house. You see, Saul, when he was king, lost it to the Philistines. It had been moving around, so they lost the ark. The Philistines had it, and what happened was is God cursed them for having it. And so at some point, even after they, they, after they took the ark, they, they, like, they called up the Israelites and said, hey, you got, you got to come get this thing back. It's causing us some problems. We're cursed. And so the Israelites are all excited. So they go to get the ark and they, and they get it and they get, they get almost you know, back into the territory. And it ends up, the ark ends up at the house of a man named 
Abinadab. And so it sits in this house for 20 years. For 20 years, the ark is sitting in the house of Abinadab. And so finally, David goes to get it. And on his way back, when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah uh, put his hand out of the, to the ark of God and to take hold of it because an oxen had stumbled. And so on the way back to David's home, right before he gets to his house, there's this little stumbling thing. Uzzah sticks his hand out to grab the ark to hold it. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error. And he died right there beside the ark. Now, every time I read that story, I'm touched by the fact that, man, this poor guy was just trying to do good. He was just trying to stable the ark, but he got struck down. And so I was just kind of pondering that for a little bit. You know what the reality is? Is that as well as his intentions were, the fact is that no one is supposed to touch the ark. In fact, only the Levites were to carry the ark. Back in Numbers 4, when Aaron and his sons had finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, as the camp sets out after the sons of Kohath, they shall come to carry these, but they must not touch the holy things lest they die. These are the things of the tent of meeting that the sons of Kohath are to carry. You see, only the Levites were supposed to carry this ark, and no one was allowed to touch it. Kohath was a Levite. In fact, he was one of Levite's sons. Uzzah, however, was part of David's men. And so he wasn't a Levite, and so they're carrying something that they weren't supposed to be carrying. In fact, we find out in 1 Samuel 16 that the house that this ark has been in, Abinadab's, that's actually David's brother. And in 2 Samuel 6, we find that Uzzah is actually um, Abinadab's son. Uzzah and Ohio were the sons of Abinadab. And so what happens here is, is we got David, we got King David's nephew was the one that had been sent out to get this ark, and he touches it. Wasn't a part of the tribe of Levi, shouldn't have touched it. You know, David cries out, and David's angry about this. You know, I can see there's a sense of, wow, God, why, why did that happen to Uzzah? You know, it had been in their family for 20 years. I can imagine that Uzzah it grew up with the ark probably in his living room. You know, it's funny. I was telling somebody, we were talking about this devotion last week with uh, two of our elders. It was funny because it was, we were talking about the fact that if you grew up with the ark in your house, then you kind of just kind of get accustomed to it, don't you? And so he'd probably grown up in the house, had been in their house for 20 years, and we started talking about some of the stuff. Think about some of the stuff in your house that when you got it, it was brand new and it was really special. You know, after about a year or two, it's kind of getting old and it's getting, you know, you're not using as much. After about five years, you're not using it at all. Year six, you're trying to figure out how to sell it on eBay. So this ark had been in their house for quite some time. You know, we were joking about they probably had stuff stacked on it. You know, the TV was sitting on top of it. I don't know. But I think what happened that there was, a, there was a sense of complacency that had crept in to their house. There was a sense that they had lost respect for the ark. Complacency is a problem when it comes to God's holiness. Complacency is our enemy. Complacency is defined as this. It's a feeling of smug or uncritical satisfaction with oneself, one's achievements, or one's circumstances. Now, smug, I think we can all identify with. That's probably kind of, a, you, know, you know, you know, people are smug. Maybe their, their attitude's wrong. They're, maybe they're prideful. There's a, there's a couple of things about smug that we can dismiss. But look at this, this uncritical satisfaction. We're going through life, and we think everything that's, is fine, but we don't stop to analyze ourselves. We don't stop to ask the questions, are we doing the things God wants us to do? Are, are we doing the things that we should be doing? And so there's this uncritical satisfaction that I think has crept into the lives, especially of people in our culture, when things are going well, we don't stop 
to analyze why are things going well. We don't evaluate ourselves from God's perspective. God takes his holiness seriously. And we're going to get a glimpse of how serious that is as we look at these trials, these tribulations, as we look at these seals, trumpets, and bowls this morning. You know, for David and and Abinadab and for uh, Uzzah, you know, I think that they had gotten complacent. I think for the most part, we are complacent in our faith today as well. These passages that we're going to look at this morning, in some ways, are going to shock us out of our complacency. You know, when you think about it, you know who's more excited about the relationship with Christ than anybody is somebody that just came to faith in Christ. You know, when you make a faith commitment, there's that sense of, oh, this is great. I've been saved. I've got the assurance of heaven. And there's nobody more excited about their relationship with Christ than somebody that just became a Christ follower. You know, getting around people that just made faith commitments, it's fun. And then what happens after the first year? It's like, oh, never really got connected. Year three, eh, they're just not growing anymore. You know, at some point, people, if they're not careful, if they're not, if they're not cautious about this complacency, it will erode their faith. It will erode their ability to conquer and to endure. And so we need to fight against complacency. And by the time we get to living out our faith, maybe 50, 70 years, you know, it's like, oh, this is bring me to heaven. We just, that fire just creeps out of our lives. And we forget about the fact that Christ could return at any moment. And we forget about the fact that our days are numbered. And we forget about the fact that we are not in control. Christ can return at any moment. Do you wake up in the morning and think, hey, this could be the day? We just get complacent in our faith. And it's important for you to understand that every single day that Jesus doesn't return is an intentional day. It's not as if Jesus forgot when the Father was going to tell him. You know, it's not as if the Father forgot his plan. It's not as if they're just waiting, just kind of waiting to see what happens. Every single day that we get is an intentional gift from God. Second Peter says this, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, or some count slowness. He is patient towards you, not wanting and not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Every single day that Christ has not returned is a gift. It's a day, it's a day that God has said, I'm going to give them one more day. I want everyone that possibly can have a faith commitment to have one. God is not slow to fulfill his promises at some count slowness. We're all waiting for Christ's return. It could happen at any day. But the implications are that when he does come back, that those that without, without Christ are going to be separated from him for eternity. And so it's God's desire that we share our faith, that we help others to know what we have and celebrate that. You know, John three sixteen. for God so loved the world, he gave his only son, whoever should believe in him should not perish. You know, that's God's heart, that, that people would be drawn into a relationship with Christ. In the book of Revelation, it's not just about predicting the outcome and about figure, trying to figure out how the story's been written. It's, it's been written for our encouragement and our benefit um, today. Chapters 6 through 16 are a reminder for us that God is holy, and our separation from him has a requirement and is satisfied fully in who we are in Christ. 
The seals, the trumpets, the bowls, they're all trials, they're judgments that creation is going to face and is already facing now. And as a result of all these things, it's because of our sin, because of our brokenness. The world is broken. We're in need of a Savior. We have that in Christ. And through him, we can begin to pursue and recover God's original purpose for us. And when Christ does return, it's not going to be to save anybody. Jesus is going to return to judge the living and the dead and there's different perspectives on what that return looks like. If you talk to different, you know, different pastors, different churches, there's a lot of different perspectives on what this end looks like. Many of you have probably already been involved in conversations about that. So before we jump into the seals, trumpets, and bowls, I want to talk to you for a moment about perspective. And so if you are watching online, uh, you should be able to see this. Actually, if you're listening, I hope you'll be able to pick it up with us as we go through this. It's probably familiar to you. But if you look at the image on your left, how many of you would raise your hand and say that that glass is, is half empty? Anybody think it's half empty? How many think it's half full? Now, why did you pick that? Because the reality is that that glass is half empty, isn't it? It's a mathematical problem. Eight, eight ounces of water, four ounces there. The glass is half empty. Why is it that nobody said, hey, the glass is half empty? You could have. It's a valid answer because our perspective is, is that if we say it's half empty, then we have a negative attitude. And so you have, you have some perceptions about how to answer that question that's preconceived. I mean, you could have answered that question just fine. That glass is, is half empty, and there's nothing wrong with that answer. And I could make an argument for both of those, couldn't I? Now, as you look at the image on the right, how many of you see that black vase? Raise your hand if you see a black vase. Well, some of you see that. Now, raise your hand if you see two faces. So maybe this is familiar to you. You've got the vase, but you've got the forehead. You've got the nose, the lips, the mouth, the chin. So that's two faces looking at each other. And there's also a vase there. And so it's about our perspective. So is that a vase or is it two faces? And so it's about our perspective. And so we bring our perspectives into things when we're reading them. On your chair, or you've got this handout, or you can look at with me on the screen. I'm going to ask you a question here. There's a board here. It's got some checkers on it with a little cylinder there. This is not a trick question. There's nothing, you know, nothing scientific about it, I guess. There's two boxes. One's got an A and one's, one's got a B. And so you can look at your sheet, kind of help you if you need to look at it. But pretty simple question. Which one of those boxes is darker? Raise your hand if you think A is darker. Okay. They're, they're the same color. And so our perspective has changed. These boxes are white. This one's black. This one's in a shade. It's got the cylinder there. It's casting a shadow. And so those boxes are actually exactly the same color. So you draw a line through there, you can kind of see it. And so what you have is you have these perspectives that affect how we view, how we see things. And we bring our perspectives with us into various portions of Scripture. So we're going to talk a little bit about those perspectives this morning. When you read through Scripture, we've got things that we know about the Old Testament, the New Testament. We have things that we know about Christ. And so we've got all these variables that affect how we regard and how we interpret and how we understand what we find in Scripture. Regarding the seals, trumpets, and bowls, there's different perspectives. And you know what? That's okay. You know, for some, arguing about whether the glass is half full or half empty, you know, that's interesting. You know, but here's the reality. You know, when it comes to the half empty, half full, here's the bottom line. No one knows the day or the hour when it's going to run out. The important, the good news is that we got water to drink if we're thirsty, isn't it? 
I mean, that's why I'm thirsty. I'm not going to sit there and have an argument about whether it's half full. Give me the water. I'm thirsty. You know, at the end of the day, you know, we get caught up on some of the most interesting things. Many people are black and white. They need to be right, and somebody needs to be wrong. So sometimes when we come to positions, there's this argument just in terms of who's right and who's wrong. And sometimes we need to live with a mystery. You know, sometimes we can drive on facts, and sometimes we live on faith. And so when it comes to these seals, trumpets, and, and bulls this morning, we're going to be talking about some perspectives. You know, and I think as you look down through here, when you read through chapters 6 through 16, you know, it's interesting because of all these different perspectives, I can make an argument for every single one of them. I can look down through here and say, I see that. I can look down through there and I can say, I see that. I can make an argument for every single one of them. Now, at the end of the day, I think some of them make more sense, and I can pick one. And if I get backed up against the corner, I do have an opinion, and I'll have to share it. But I also respect the other positions as well. This is an oversimplification of what we see in these chapters, 6 through 16. But when we look at the chapters from Revelation 6 all the way through, actually through 1721, there's a, there's a way of interpreting these that is called strict sequentialism. In other words, what happens is, is it starts with the first seal. We go to the second, third, fourth, and seventh, and so on. And then you go right into number one, two, three, four, seven. And then you go right into the bowls. And so there's a perspective that says this is a straight line. So when I'm reading through these, these trumpets, or these seals, these trumpets and bowls, when I'm reading back through this judgment, that there's a sense that they're just going to happen one after another. It's like a rolling, kind of a rolling event. It's a straight line. And for some, this doesn't even occur until actually in the future. And so in one sense, we don't need to worry about this. It's irrelevant because it's not going to happen until the future, so I can just live my day out. And so people have different ideas about when it's going to start, but it's called strict sequentialism. And it's that these things are just going to roll in an order. And then there's sequential parallelism. It just says, hey, the, the seals are going to be unfolded, one, two, three, four, six, six. And when you get to the seventh, it's going to drop down and it's going to usher in the trumpets. And then you're going to read through the trumpets, 8 through 11, and then you're going to drop down on the seventh trumpet, and you see the bulls unfold. And so when you look at this, when you look at sequential parallelism, you see the six seals. On that seventh seal is the threshold of when Jesus might be returning. And so we just got to get through the first six seals. That's the seventh that causes all the problem, and then we run into the, the trumpets and the bulls at the end. And so that's another perspective. And then there's what's called strict parallelism. Strict parallelism says that all the ones happen at one time. So you get a vision, and then you come back through, and you get a second vision, and you get back through, and you come, comes another vision. See, what happens is when, they're ta- when, they're, when, they're, when, when John's reading this, he says, and then I saw this, and then I saw this. Well, is that, does that mean it's, then I saw this immediately following it, or does it mean there's a series of things, and then I saw the next vision, and then I saw this? And so a lot of how you interpret the then I saw this has to do with this strict parallelism. I saw, if you're going to line up all these sevens, I mean, it's seven, right? It's a perfect number, one through seven, one through seven, one through seven. Line these things up, they're all parallel. They're all going to happen at the same time, and then we're going to move through time together. And so there's some that hold that. There's different aspects of what's happening, but it's the exact same process, and then Jesus is going to return after the seventh seal, trumpet, bull. And then there's another position that's called progressive parallelism. And it's just like the other one, with the exception of these things are all going to happen. You've got the seven seals, trumpets, and bulls. They're all happening simultaneously. 
as you move through time, some of it's seal, some of it's trumpet, some of it's bowl. And then when you get to the very end, all seven of them kind of culminate in this one great catastrophic, catastrophic event. And so, but there's things that are happening now that are going to come to the fulfillment. It's going to get worse, it's going to get worse, and it's going to get worse, and then it's going to come to its fullness. And like the strict, but it, they're reflected throughout the church age. It's not just a, s- a sense of, hey, we have nothing to worry about until Christ returns. Things are going to get progressively worse as we move towards the second coming. And so that was a very simple, simple very variation summary. And there are many others, you know, there's, uh, there's, there's different spinoffs of each one of these. These are maybe the four big ones that I thought would really help us to be able to understand, you know, what this looks like. There are many, many other variations, but those are probably the big four. Even on our pastoral staff, we like to talk about this. We've got different understandings about what this might look like. And so these things are not showstoppers. We've got different positions. Some churches align themselves based on those positions. And I think that misses the purpose for what God has for us together as the body of Christ. There are some people that say, if you don't believe this, then you, they, question your, <laughs> they question your faith. There are some that take a really hard line on this. They're black and white, and that forces division. It is an important issue. It is important that we know when Christ returns. Would you not agree? <laughs> it's important that we, that we study these things. We need to have an opinion about these things. But I could have picked any one of those, and I could have said, this is it. And I could have taught on that this morning. I could have picked one of those positions. I said, this is what I believe. Or this is what we believe. I could have picked any one of them and done that. But you know what's interesting? At the end of the day, who cares what Richard believes? My opinion is, you know, is not any better than somebody else's opinion. And we end up making this a fight between personalities. There are people that take stands on this that are causing division that I think are unnecessarily. The bottom line is, is what is in the Bible and what does the Bible say? When I'm teaching, I am very, very intentional not to say, this is what I think, as if that carries some weight for something. People don't want to know what I think. They want to know what this says. And so in our teaching, our responsibility is to flesh out and bring to bear what God would have for us in any specific time as we're studying a text together. What I think is, you know, if somebody asks me for my opinion, I'm more than happy to share it. But my conviction is, that this Bible has something for us, and we need to learn from it. And so we need to read it and study it together. It's my prayer when we approach these kind of texts that people don't see me, they don't see a teacher, they don't see other pastors, that they see what the text says. And that's what we're going to do this morning. We're just going to work through these seals, these trumpets, and these bowls this morning. And you can look at it with yourself if you'd like as well. You brought a Bible, we're in uh, Revelation chapter 6. If you're watching online, there's a little place for you to click the Bible down at the bottom. I encourage you just to uh, listen or to read along. I'm going to start with these seven seals. Beginning in chapter 6, it says this. I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud voice of thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and its crown was given to him. And he came out a conquering king. And this is Jesus that is reading these, releasing these seven seals. Remember, we saw Revelation 5, uh, we don't have to weep anymore because the lion, the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the seven seals. And we're looking at Jesus, and so Jesus is going through, and he's opening each one of these seven seals. He opens the first seal, and he sees a white horse. Verse 3, when he opened the second seal, he heard a come, and the living creature said, come. And out of there came another horse, bright red. Verse 5, he opened the third seal, and I heard the third living creature say, Come. 
And I looked, and behold, I saw a black horse. Verse 7, he opened the fourth seal. I heard the voice of the living creature say, Come, and behold, I saw a pale horse. Its name was Death. Each one of these horses has an attribute, that, an attribute that's associated with it. We see the white horse is one that's conquering. It's a conquering king. We see the red horse, we have peace removed from all the earth. We see the black horse is bringing economic and food calamity. And we see the pale horse brings death and is poured out on the earth. And so these, these four horsemen are the, are, the, are the first things that you see when these seals open up. A lot of times people call them the four, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. You probably heard that. We see, you've seen a lot of references to four horsemen, four horsemen. Some of it has to do with how you understand what's happening at the end times. And so they're typically known as the four horsemen of the apocalypse in a sense that we're waiting and nothing's happening. We don't have to worry until the four horsemen show up. But there's one sense right now that peace has been removed. Jesus says, in this world, you're trials, you're going to have trials and tribulations, but take heart. I've overcome that world, and my peace is in you. And so when you look down through these, you know, Jesus has conquered death through his, through his resurrection at the grave. And so when you look at some of these, some of these have some application for us today, and some of them we can push off to the future. But these are relevant conversations for us today. You know, when you look down through and you look at the fifth seal in verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those that had been slain for the word of God for the witness that they had borne. You see the, those that have given their lives for their faith, you see, the, you see them, they get white robes. They're martyrs. And those are some of the people that you saw up in the throne room. They had white robes around them, remember? Everything flows from the throne, and everything has its return to the throne. And so when that fifth, fifth seal is opened, we see those that had survived are given white robes. The sixth seal is opened. I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth, and the moon became red like blood, and the, and the sky fell from the earth. The fig, just as a fig, fig tree in winter yields its fruit. And so we see an earthquake. We see sun black, and we see the moon red. And then we get to the seventh seal. When you go through chapter 7, we get a glimpse of the faithful, those that have gone before us. We see a glimpse of the faithful and their promises. And you move into verse in chapter 8. You see the seventh seal opened up at the beginning. And it says, the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. I don't know about you, but after reading through this, silence sounds good to me. (laughs) There's a lot happening with these seals here. And so each one of these things, as you read through it, has some implication for us today. There has some things for us as it relates to God's promises to us tomorrow. And so you use various ways to interpret these. And so, but as if this was not enough, that we have to catch our breath. Then we get ready to move into the trumpets and the bowls. We have the second trumpets, the Revelation in chapter 8, beginning in chapter 8, we know we get those. We get those when the Lamb opened the seventh seal. There was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And then, then I saw. And there's this, this then I saw. That's, that's creating a lot of confusion because it's like, okay, well, at what point are you seeing this? Is it sequential or is it just the next set of the vision? But he sees this seven angels who now stand before God, and they've been given seven trumpets. And so we know the angels are now blowing these trumpets. And so we have Jesus popping open the seals. We have the angels blowing the trumpets. And those angels, uh, that, that, that number seven is reflective of its perfection and completion. And we saw those seven angels before the throne room. And so it's part of the Holy Spirit, but they're reflected as seven angels. You know, some believe that those are seven different separate angelic beings. Some people interpret Isaiah 11, the seven spirits of Isaiah. And so even with regard to the angels, there's different understandings of who those angels are. But the bottom line here is, is that the Spirit of God, angels are getting ready to pour some wrath out on the world. And we get a glimpse of what that looks like as we start to move into chapter 8. The seven angels who had been given the trumpets were prepared to blow them, it says in verse 6. 
Chapter 8, verse 7 says, The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed with him hail and fire. It was mixed with blood, and they were thrown all down to earth. And, there, and the third of the earth was burned up. It was scorched. A third of the trees were burned up, and all the grass was burned up. The second trumpet blows in verse 8. The second angel blows his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire is thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea becomes blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea die, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third trumpet blows in verse 10. A great star falls from heaven, blazing like a torch. It fell on a third of the rivers and the springs of water. The fourth trumpet blows in verse 12. His trumpet, at his trumpet, the third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, a third of the stars, and a third of the light became darkened, and a third of the day became dark and was kept from shining. The fifth trumpet blows. I saw a star fall from heaven to earth. It was given the key of the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke, like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened. Then from the smoke came locusts of the earth, and they were given power like scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth, but they were told to harm only those who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. We get to the sixth trumpet. It blows in verse 13. I heard a voice from the horns of the golden altar before God saying to the sixth angel who blew the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for that hour and day of the month, they were released to kill a third of mankind. As you move into chapter 10, just like we saw before with the seals, we have a break in the drama here. We see a break before the seventh trumpet blows with two visions that are designed to comfort the saints. And then we move right into that seventh, we move right into that seventh trumpet. In chapter 11, verse 15, it blows and there were heard like loud voices from heaven saying, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God. And so as these trumpets unfold, we see hail and fire with blood. A third of everything is wiped out. We see a great mountain take a third of everything out. We see a flaming star take a third of fresh water out. We see a third of the sun, a third of the moon, a third of the stars darkened. Locusts and like scorpions flying around the air, stinging everybody, is causing torment to those that do not have a relationship with Christ. And then we see four angels kill one-third of mankind and release an army. And then we see the temple of heaven open up. And so we get to catch our breath again. It was a sequence to these seals, these trumpets and the bowls. And so when you line up, you can see the parallelism in it. And so there's a couple different ways to translate it. Are these happening in cycles or is it all happening? It's just getting progressively worse and worse and worse. So there's a couple different ways to understand it. But here's the bottom line. Trumpets, those are not a good thing. They're wreaking havoc. And so we move right into the trumpets. And if that wasn't enough, you know, these trumpets reflect pain, suffering, torment. I'm so grateful for the two visions that we have from the angels and the two witnesses that can encourage us. And so I'd encourage you to read through those chapters. As bad as things appear to us today, we know it's going to get progressively worse. And as painful as it is to think about this, after this description, we get the further judgment of two beasts. And, and uh, we, you know, there's, all these things are unfolding. And, and if this was not enough, we get to the seven bowls. And the seven bowls, if God has not caught your attention by now, is going to get your attention with the bowls. Because it's in the bowls that we see the wrath of God brought together to be ready to pour it out. 
Revelation 15 says, Out of the sanctuary came seven angels with seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chest. And one of the four living creatures gave the seven angels seven golden bowls full of wrath, the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And so we get the setup of these bowls, and then they're going to just start pouring out on us. They're just going to start to pour out on us. It begins in chapter 15, in chapter 16, in verse 2. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and a harmful, painful sores came upon all the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. Then the second angel came and poured his bowl out into the sea, and it became like blood. The corpse and everything that was in the sea died. Before it was a third, now it's everything in its entirety. Chapter 16, verse 4, the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and into the springs of water, and they became like blood. As you go down to the fourth angel poured out his bowl in verse 8, he poured it out into the sun, and the sun was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by a fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over their plagues, and they did not repent or give God glory. The fifth bowl is poured out in verse 10. On the throne of the beast, his kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. Verse 12, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of a dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, unclean spirits like frogs, their demonic spirits performing signs to go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for a battle on this great day of God. And as you move into verse 17, you see the seventh angel pour out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice then comes from the temple saying, it is done. It is finished. Out of this sanctuary, out of this throne, comes these judgments. The bowls are pouring out harmful, painful sores to idol worshipers. Blood has killed every living thing in the sea. Blood into the, the remaining water is turned to blood. The sun's allowed to scorch people with fire. The beast and the idol worshipers go into darkness. The dragon, the beast, and the false prophets prepare for battle, and the whole thing comes to its fulfillment. And from the throne, you hear the words, it is done. You know, these seals, trumpets, and bowls, as much fun as it is to try to take a look at how they fit together. And, and if you look at the biblical references for where these things fit with other, you, there, there are men that have spent their entire life mapping this all out. There are books and books that are written helping us to understand some of these images. Do you know what the bottom line is? God's wrath is not something that we want to endure. God is holy, and our sinfulness has consequences, and it's reflected in these seals, these trumpets, and these bowls. In other words, don't mess with God. Jesus describes heaven as paradise. There's no more weeping. There's no more fighting. There's no more gnashing of teeth. But the opposite is also true. Apart from God's presence, apart from our assurance in Christ, is an incredibly painful and chaotic life. I love to talk about heaven. I somewhat enjoy talking about Revelation. It is a painful reminder of how holy God is and how sinful I am. We saw a glimpse of the beauty of heaven last Sunday. 
God seated on the throne. It was splendorous. It was worshipful. It was, it was gorgeous. Well, the opposite is equally true. Apart from God is everything that we just looked at. All the wrath that's poured out. I feel so bad that Uzzah died doing what he thought was the right thing to do when he grabbed that ark. Even though he was trying to do good, he died because he was not obedient. Doing good is not what God is after. God is not looking for good people. God is looking for obedient people. And when God says only the Levites should carry it, don't touch the ark or you're going to die, he means it. God's holiness requires perfect obedience. We fall short and praise God that all of this wrath, everything that we see in the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, Christ took on himself at that cross. We don't have to worry about this if you're a Christ follower. Jesus took the wrath of God on himself when he died on that cross for us. We just celebrated Easter just a couple weeks ago. That was a huge celebration of, of the sacrifice that was made on our behalf. Jesus died to take on our sins. In John chapter 5, verse 25, it says this. Truly, truly, he says this. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of God and those who will hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so has he granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Don't marvel at this because an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and they will come out. For those that have done good to the resurrection, life. For those who have done evil, those who have been obedient and those who have been unobedient is the resurrection of judgment. When Christ comes back, it's going to be to judge the living and the dead. Apart from Christ, we're going to experience those things on our own. Praise God, we can have the assurance that Jesus died for our sins. When it says Jesus died for our sins, it means he died to take those things on for us. Our goal is to finish well. The message to the churches was to to, to conquer to the end, to finish well, so that when we do stand before God in heaven, we can hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. As we read through Revelation, it should be an encouragement to us about what we do have in Christ. When we take communion, it should be an encouragement to us to thank God that Jesus took that on, our, on, our, on himself. It's also an opportunity for us to evaluate our lives so that we're not living complacent faith. We need to live intentionally. God's given us every day intentionally, and we need to live intentionally. And there's good news for those that have a relationship with Christ. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. When you read down through those seals, those trumpets, and those bowls, it's easy to see a wrathful, vengeful God. That's not God's desire for us. He sent his son to take that on for us so that if we believe in him, we should not perish, but we should have that eternal life. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing and we don't have any assurance of heaven. And with Christ, we have the absolute opposite. We get to avoid that wrath. If you do not have a relationship with Christ this morning, it's the most important decision that you're going to make in this life. And it's going to be easy for us to walk out of here and be complacent and forget about this and say, yeah, that sounds interesting. But the reality is, that the tomb was empty, the body was gone, and Jesus keeps his promises. If you don't have a relationship with Christ this morning, I want to encourage you to make that a priority. Father, 
draw me into a relationship with your son. I believe that your son is God, that his death on the cross paid for my sin, that he took that wrath on himself, that he came back to life and he was resurrected from the dead. And he's going to return to judge the living and the dead. And as best as I know how, I want to ask him to come into my life and to be my Lord and my Savior. If you are not absolutely sure in your mind this morning that you have a relationship with Christ, you need to ask him to come in so that you can have the same assurance that all believers do, that when we die, we're going to be robed in white, we're going to be taken up to that throne, and we're going to be in paradise in the presence of God. Because the alternative to that is to face those trials It's to face those seals, trumpets, and bowls. And my friends, I don't wish that on anybody. But the choice is yours. And so this morning, if you have questions about how to have a relationship with Christ, we would love the opportunity to talk with you. If you're watching online and you want a relationship with Christ, there's a little place, I think there's a little thing that says, click, I want to know more. I want to have a relationship with Christ. You know, this morning, if you are not clear in your mind that you have a relationship with Christ, we'd love the opportunity to talk with you. After the message this morning, I'll stand up to the front. I'd love the opportunity to pray with you. If you want to pray this prayer this morning and say, today's the day that I cross that line of faith. I'm going to claim God's promises. I'm going to become a Christ follower. I'd love the opportunity to pray with you this morning. You pray online or on that little communication card on your seat. There's a place for you to back say, I want to know more about how have a relationship with Christ. But don't leave today without solving that decision in your mind. On our website at springbrook.org, you can uh, go to uh, slash revelation. Um, We've got our past messages. We've got the sermon notes, or we've got the material that our small groups are using. We've got our past slides. Um, All the information that you need um, to kind of help process through this series with us is available there. But this morning, if you want to know more about how to have a relationship with Christ, we really would love the opportunity um, to talk with you. Like I said, I've been studying this topic for many years. Three resources that have been specifically helpful for me as I process through this. Apart from the Bible, I encourage you to get the uh, ESV Study Bible. It's a great resource uh, for uh, in the commentary. Um, it's got some good commentary for you. Sometimes when you're reading down through here, it's like, ooh, what's that mean? I encourage you to get a good Study Bible. The ESV Study Bible is probably my favorite. Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology is a great resource. Kingdom Come by Sam Storms, or A Basic Guide to Eschatology by Millard Erickson. When we went into this series, it was, you know, it looked completely different than it does right now. It was going to be about God being in control. We're going to look at various passages through Revelation. The the series kind of morphed on us. People just want to know about the millennium. They want to know about these seals, trumpets, and bowls. And so it kind of took on a little bit different of a flavor, but I am really excited about where it's been going, and I just want to encourage you that if you've got questions along the way, to please, please let us know. I'm so grateful that you were with us this morning as we kind of process through seals, trumpets, and bulls. We've covered a lot of territory. If you've got questions or want to know more, uh, you can just reach out to any member of our pastoral staff and I encourage you to go to our website, take advantage of those resources to you there. And if you want to know more about how to have a relationship with Christ, uh, please come up and talk with me after the service this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, I just want to thank you for this day you've given us today. And... Um, God, I thank you for the work that Christ accomplished for us on the cross. Uh, God, what a, an incredible gift. I read down through these seals and these trumpets and these bowls, and I just, I read down through that, and it just, oh, it's overwhelming, the wrath that's poured out on those that are apart from you. And I know it's because you are holy. God, you are a holy and just God, and, and your holiness and your justice require that. But I am also so grateful that you loved us you loved us enough to give us an out that we can avoid those things that through your son, Jesus, 
God, we can have the assurance of eternal life and enjoy our presence with you for all eternity. God, what a gift. Thank you for my friends gathered this morning. I pray that you would encourage us. Help us to encourage one another as we live out our faith. God, we want to conquer to the end so that we can hear those words. Well done, good and faithful servant. We commit this day to you. Look forward to all that you have for us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's stand together and respond to this word. Let's surrender our lives to the Lord. out together. Sing worthy. Worthy of every song we could ever sing. Worthy of all the praise we could ever bring. You're worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. And we live for you.
prayer today as you go from here that God would lead you in his love to those around you. Don't keep this good news to yourself. Let the Lord use you to bless the world around you. Hear now this benediction from Revelation 1. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Go now in the grace and peace of the Lord to love and serve our great God. Have a blessed week in him. Every time I try to make it on my Every time I try to stand and start to fall And all those lonely roads that I traveled There was Jesus When the life I built came crashing to the ground When the friends I had were nowhere to be found I couldn't see it then, but I can see it now Well, there was Jesus